Hi everyone, this is Marty Logan. I wanted to let you know that I'm hosting a new podcast for IPS News. It's called Strive, Toward a More Just, Sustainable World. It's about people everywhere who are taking action to address climate change, racism, inequality, and many other challenges we all face today. One thing that I think makes Strive different is we'll be discussing solutions, not just adding to your burden by detailing the problems. Our first episode looked at how civil society in South Asia is leading a COVID mask-up campaign. On the next one, we hear how a community currency can invigorate poor communities in Kenya that are often sidelined by the national economy. Please look for Strive on your podcast player or click on the link in the notes to this episode. Okay, on to Nepal now. Welcome to Nepal Now, I'm Marty Logan. From October 31st to November 12th this year, the UN Climate Change Conference, COP26, will meet in Glasgow, Scotland. The COP, which is short for the Conference of the Parties, basically the nearly 200 governments that have signed the UN Climate Change Treaty, has been meeting since 1994 to try to agree on limiting the production of greenhouse gases that contribute to the global warming that results in climate change. And still, after all those meetings, the best-case scenario for the eight Asian countries home to the Hindu Kush Himalaya, including Nepal, is that one-third of the mountain's glaciers will melt by the end of this century. The worst case, two-thirds will disappear. This is not as simple as getting used to the absence of those massive rivers of ice. The glaciers are a key source of the water that nourishes three billion people, one-third of the world's population, in Asia. And as we all know, water is essential for life. The International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, or EC Mode, has been informing the world about the impacts of climate change on the Hindu Kush Himalaya, or HKH, for years and of the impact on the 240 million people who live in the mountains, and of those 3 billion who rely on them for water. Today we're speaking with Nanki Kaur, Regional Program Manager, Adaptation and Resilience Building, about Isimode's campaign ahead of COP26. It makes the case that more attention and resources must go to fighting the impacts of climate change in the HKH. Now, here's my chat with Nanki Kaur. Nanki Kaur, welcome to Nepal Now podcast. Thank you, Marty. Thank you for having me here. So climate change has been in the news, it seems, everywhere in recent days. Here in Nepal, there were floods and landslides in Malamchi and nearby areas. There's, of course, been flooding in Germany. There's wildfires still burning in North America. And then this week, the latest report from this UN expert panel, um, you're leading a campaign to raise awareness about the impact of climate change on the mountains known as the Hindu Kush Himalaya, ahead of a very important global meeting that's happening in the UK later this year. So definitely we're going to talk about your campaign. 
But first, can you briefly describe the mountains, the Hindu Kush Himalaya, and why they're important in the context of climate change? So, Marty, the Hindu Kush uh, Himalaya is a mountainous region, and it extends across 3,500 kilometers, uh, all the way from Afghanistan in the west to Myanmar in the east. Uh, as such, this is a region that covers or uh, spans across eight countries. So we've got parts of Pakistan, parts of India, parts of China, parts of Bangladesh, and all of Nepal and Bhutan that come into the Hindu Kush Himalaya region. And now touching on your second question that you asked, why why is this region important? So at Isimod, we refer to the Hindu Kush Himalaya as the pulse of the planet or the roof of the world. So what happens in this region really has implications for the rest of the world. So this is a region um, where about, I think, 20% of its land cover is under ice um, and snow. So this is why it's also known as the third pole. Um, So the largest amount of ice reserves outside the north and the south pole. Uh, Because of this, the region also supports 10 of the main uh, river systems across Asia. It is also home to four of the global uh, biodiversity hotspots. And with all these rich natural resources, uh, it is home to 240 million people who live in the mountains, who share very diverse cultures. Uh, But it also supports the lives and livelihoods of an additional 1.9 billion people that live downstream uh, from this region. And beyond that, it supports sort of food security and water security for 3 billion people, or that's almost a third of humanity. So that is one of the reasons why we consider this region as very important. And any change that happens here uh, will have an impact on 3 billion people. So any race, when we are talking about uh, being resilient to the climate crisis, Um, we think it really does need to focus on this region. Great, thank you. That was very clear uh, and paints a good picture. That figure of 3 billion people who uh, receive their their water source from this region, the Hindu Kush Himalaya, that figure has stuck in my head. And when I think about, you know, melting glaciers and and the diminished supply of water, I, I get very worried thinking that, This is the water supply for so many people in the world, like you said, almost a third of humanity. So, okay, you know, a very important part of the world, obviously. We have this meeting coming up in November that's being called COP26. It's a huge United Nations meeting of of virtually all the countries in the world to talk about climate change. Why is it important for the Hindu Kush Himalaya or HKH? So, Madi, let's let's break that up. Let's start with what is COP26. Uh, so, COP refers to the Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Uh, so, that refers to all the countries uh, that meet and make decisions under the UNFCCC. Also, just a bit of a background of why COP26 is important is that the Conference of Parties have obviously been meeting for 25 years. And at uh, in Paris in 2015, uh, the, all countries came together and agreed the all-important Paris Agreement. 
So this is an agreement which was seen as landmark when it comes to uh, global decision making around climate change. And under the Paris Agreement, countries agreed to broadly three goals. The most important, which you'll hear a lot about in this climate report that's been released, is uh, the goal to limit global uh, warming to well below two degrees, ideally to 1.5 degrees centigrade compared to pre-industrial level. So I'm going to call that the mitigation goal, keep temperature to 1.5 degrees. The second thing that countries agreed to was what I refer to as the adaptation goal. And that was an agreement that there is a need to increase the ability of communities to adapt to climate change. And that's acknowledging that a lot of climate change is something that we're already witnessing. And no matter what we do today, uh, we will need to adapt to it. And this is a point that I think, unfortunately, has been reiterated by the IPCC climate report, that there are many things that uh, it's already too late uh, to address. So levels of melting glaciers and some of the adverse impacts are things that we are already stuck with. So that was the second one, the adaptation goal. And the third one that countries agreed to was to make efforts to ensure that financial flows are aligned or consistent to climate resilient and what they call low carbon development. And this, as we know, money makes the world go round. This is a really important goal for a number of reasons. We need to ensure that we have enough money to mitigate and to adapt to climate change. Uh, We also need to ensure that most of our investments uh, are climate responsive rather than supporting a more fossil fuel based economy. This was what was agreed in 2015. So that's just a bit of a background of where we are heading to COP26. And I'm saying this because COP26 marks the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement. And parties had agreed that five years down the road, they will come up with concrete actions of how they're going to implement these goals that they signed up to. So what are they going to do? to limit global temperature or keep it to 1.5 degrees? What are they going to do to scale up efforts to help adapt to climate change? And what are they going to do to start to ensure that financial flows are aligned to climate smart actions? So this is why all of us have our eyes on COP26. What goes in here will have implications for the next few years. And Marty, you said you've been reading the climate report with much interest, uh, that pretty much says that we have 10 years. If we do not get it right in the next 10 years, then we've lost any any hope of keeping global temperature down to 1.5 degrees. What first attracted me to, to have this conversation was the announcement that Mode and yourself are leading a campaign uh, with the hashtag of HKH2Glasgow, which will be the site of the COP26. Uh, you're leading a campaign of all of the HKH countries for COP26. And is it fair to say your campaign is a way to 
collectively sensitize decision makers around the world about why more needs to be done specifically to address climate change and its impacts in the HKH region? Yes, I I think, or I hope it's fair to say that. That is the goal of this campaign. So like you said, we do refer it refer to it as the HKH to Glasgow campaign. Uh, this campaign has two specific objectives in the run-up to COP26. The first one is to promote mountain voices at COP26. And the second one is to ensure that we come away from COP26 with an agreement to scale up investment in mountain-specific climate priorities. Now, the reason why we are saying this uh, again is also goes back to your previous question, why focus on COP26 and why should we promote mountain voices at COP26? I think there are a number of reasons to do so. Out of that, I'm going to focus on um, three. So the first one, like I said, why should we make make sure that mountain voices are heard is because uh, the, the world has agreed to try to keep temperature to 1.5 degrees and the IPCC report and the current analysis by organizations like the Climate Tracker, which look at what countries are doing to achieve this goal, pretty much indicate that we, we are way past it. But 1.5 degrees is already too hot for our region. And that's because uh, I'm not a climate scientist, but my lay understanding on this is that because of elevation-dependent warming, the higher you go, the hotter it gets. So even in a 1.5 degree world, uh, mountains in our region, specifically mountains above 2,000 meters, they'll already be hotter by 2 degrees. But with that increase in temperature, even in a 1.5 degree world, we are already uh, likely to lose a third of our glaciers by 2100. Uh, And if we carry on under the business as usual scenario, which almost takes us to a five degree increase in temperature, we'll be losing somewhere around 65% of our glacial uh, volume. Uh, The other thing that we're also seeing is the projections for huge extreme weather events uh, in our region, uh, increasing floods or droughts, and a lot of that, like you said, we are already experiencing when we talk about the Milamchi flooding as an example. Uh, the second reason that we want to uh, promote mountain voices at COP26 is, is to acknowledge that mountain issues uh, or mountain priorities are not specifically recognized when we talk about what, what should we do about climate change. So, for example, countries will go and agree that we should scale up adaptation, but it's not specific to what does adaptation mean in the mountain areas. So as as you're aware, our tourism is a very big economic activity, a livelihood activity in our region, but not many countries have really prioritized uh, ensuring that tourism remains as a viable option for mountain people. One of the biggest areas that people are focusing is on more resilient infrastructure. But again, what does resilient infrastructure mean for mountain people and for mountain ecosystems? So these these are some of the things that we think why it's important to have a mountain-specific voice in these global decision-making places. The third reason 
uh, again to promote mountain voices is that at the global level and also at the regional or national level we don't really have systems in place to address what is called transboundary risks so a glacier melt in let's say nepal will have implications um, for india uh, or for other regions but currently there is no mechanism to address or to plan for these types of uh, risks that cut across borders what you said uh, is this an opportunity to to take forward a collective voice so currently that collective voice is converging around three messages the first one in short or the tagline is pulse of the planet and that message is specifically to highlight that the hkh is the pulse of the planet like i said uh, supports almost 3 billion people um, critical ecosystems so it's the pulse of the planet but also at the front line of the climate crisis the second message that we'd like to take forward is what we refer to as mountains of opportunity and this message focuses specifically on the need to scale up investment uh, in mountain specific climate priorities so when we say investment that refers to financial resources but also more enabling policies so that people can transition to a more uh, resilient or a low carbon uh, development pathway and we also mean our capacities or skills uh, so that people can be part of this new or desired world so in order to scale up this investment we are saying that there is a mountain of opportunity that is provided uh, in the mountain region and this mountain of opportunity we are saying is is very much also taking into account the fact that our region has been hit very hard by covid but uh, at the moment are uh, trying their best to recover from covid and they've put they they have started put, putting forward some very big uh, economic recovery packages uh, to recover from covid so what we are what we are saying is that there is a mountain of opportunity for our member countries were to align covid recovery with climate action and ensure that there is synergy in our resources uh, and through that we can start scaling up the financial resources or the enabling policy or put in place the desired skill set to be part of a more sustainable or a more resilient world and the third one that we are focusing on is what we refer to as the power of eight and that really really is that with these eight mountain countries working together uh and coming together to address climate action and to make sure that covid recovery is also uh moving towards a more sustainable and resilient um business as usual uh way of working uh that these eight countries will be able to leverage greater cooperation regional and international cooperation to really deliver uh this agenda at the speed and at the scale that it's uh, required to be delivered that means over the next 10 years so you were just talking about working together as eight countries and obviously there are strength in numbers but there is also the the inverse or converse of that is these eight countries are in all 
very different positions in terms of development and geopolitical, economic uh, situations. Will there be difficulties, do you think, in maybe developing some sort of common positions? And does this, I mean, how far does this cooperation extend when it comes to COP26? For example, you're not going to be agreeing on positions that the negotiators of each of each country are, are going to use when they're actually sitting in the meetings, I imagine. So first to start off is is to agree with you that yes, of course, this, these are very diverse countries uh, in all aspects. But what these eight countries have also recognized is that they do share common risks. And in this case, they have, uh, I think, without without any uh, any doubt, acknowledged that climate change is a shared risk. So that that really has been the starting point for the work that we are doing in terms of uh, strengthening regional cooperation. Working in, in areas where countries' interests converge, and in this case, they, they, they converge in the need to address climate change, even the fact that they have quite different positions. So you have uh, China and India and Pakistan, and then you have uh, five least developing countries uh, within this grouping of eight countries. And they do, of course, have quite different positions. But uh, in uh, 2020, uh, these eight countries actually came together and signed what I, I would consider quite a historical agreement. In that call to action, they've in short agreed that there is a need to focus and ensure a more sustainable and inclusive development in the mountain areas. So that, I think, is a great starting point and a great political starting point uh, for this process of uh, a collective voice at COP26. So for this campaign, uh, we are starting from that ministerial declaration and we are focusing specifically on the climate uh, asks within that declaration. So that's what we are taking to COP26. And the second part of what you said uh, is it difficult when they have their own negotiating positions? I think that's quite an important distinction to make in this campaign. The campaign will not will not focus on sort of national uh, national positions. Uh, it is focusing very much on the regional uh, regional aspects and the shared ecosystem uh, that these countries all are bound by. And that is what the campaign is really trying to identify. What is it that we share? What is it that we can come together around? Thank you. That's great. And this leads me also to something I was thinking about earlier, which is obviously there are other regions in the world that are particularly sensitive, affected by climate change. And I'm thinking of the Pacific Islands and the Caribbean for two and they will also, I'm sure, be going to the COP meeting to advocate for more for their regions, more attention, more funding, more better policies, as you described. There is, I guess, you, you could look at this as some competition for resources or at least for people's attention and people's ears. I mean, how do you think you'll be able to distinguish your campaign so that it does get the attention that, that we need for the HKH region. So you're right, there are, there are lots of uh, groupings around uh, 
critical ecosystems. So there are the small island developing states. Um, there's there's an alliance probably around rainforests. So so firstly, just to say that um, the mountain ecosystem itself uh, hasn't been recognized so much uh, in this global discourse. So even uh, one of the reasons why this IPCC report is really important is that it's for the first time that our region has been represented there as a contiguous whole. So previously there, there were bits on the Tibetan plateau or something. So this is the first time that our region has been represented as a whole. So it's it's important just to recognize that the region itself is important. The second point that you said that other countries will also make a pitch, I, I don't think this, this is a stage of competing demands. I, I think the world over uh, is now facing a climate crisis. And I hope sort of the global negotiations uh, is not about competition. But in this campaign, that, that is one of the things that we are, of course, aware of. And it's also why we have framed the, the two asks uh, the way we have. So the one that we say is mountains of opportunity. So, of course, we can ask for international support and there must be international support to enable this transition to happen because it's not our world that is really responsible and specifically not the mountain people that are really responsible for this mess. But we are at a stage where no matter what, nobody has a choice. We'll all have to pull together to do something. So one of the reasons why we framed uh, the messages around mountains of opportunity uh, and that, that we've decided to focus on, on encouraging our countries to really align their COVID recovery measures and their climate action measures is to actually start putting forward the resources that we already have domestically uh, towards this uh, objective. And we're at a stage where, where we really can't afford not to do that. So what, what we are saying is that if our countries were to alive, uh, align their COVID recovery measures, and that's a significant amount of our GDP is going to go into these measures, if we can align or make sure that those are also responsive to climate action, we will start putting in place the enabling environment to then attract additional investment into this area. So we are saying our countries are already taking action themselves, communities are already taking actions themselves, our governments are already investing in this area themselves. Uh, we're saying if we align that better, it it will just uh, provide a more enabling environment to leverage additional in investment from outside or from inside. So that's one. And the second one, the power of eight, again, we are not saying that somebody else come and support us. Again, that message is very much that let's build uh, and let's showcase that as eight countries, we already are cooperating. Let's showcase, let's promote that and really show that as an example to the rest of the world that there, nobody's going to be able to do this alone. So if we work together, it can help us uh, improve our financial systems. It can help us improve our learning. It can help us share knowledge. It can help us develop a more coherent system uh, that that addresses transboundary risks as a whole and move forward together. It's to go and showcase what our region is already doing rather than go there and say, give us something. And then that leads to another question I have, and maybe this will be the final one. 
think I mentioned near the beginning that there is this hashtag, which is what a lot of people might see initially, HKH2Glasgow. For people who are listening, who are you know, more than interested and want to do something, want to get involved, is there a way, are you encouraging people to share the hashtag? Is there, a, I guess, a public kind of social media component to this campaign? So for people who are listening, we'd also love to get your ideas on, on how you can support this campaign. From our side, we've thought of a few things. There's obviously the social media campaign, which we would love it if you joined through the hashtag and started promoting your voice, your messages through this hashtag, get in touch with us um, so that we, we can also take these voices uh, to Glasgow we are also thinking of uh, sort of more formal ways to take voices to Glasgow. So currently, we've been thinking of different stakeholder groups to engage with. There's obviously our member countries and uh, the governments within them. So that's a process that we've already started. And we've been engaging with them through uh, events and one-to-one -one dialogues for them to start uh, designing this message and then hopefully promoting it at COP26. So we are working with uh, the, the climate focal points in all eight countries. And we also hope to work with the ministers that will be going to COP26. Uh, the other group that we are very keen to work with is the youth, um, because the next 10 years is about, about them. And for this, uh, um, my colleague Udayan uh, is going to be leading uh, youth engagement and different ways to get in touch. So if anybody has any suggestions of how we can do that, we'd really welcome them. Uh, at the moment, I think there are plans to also come up with uh, a music video uh, with young uh, artists from all eight countries uh, to come up with a mountain voice around climate action. So we're quite excited about that. We are also working quite a lot with the COP26 presidency, which hosts the conference in November. And we are working with them specifically so that they can help promote our voices. And I think we've been privileged to have hosted the COP26 president, Alok Sharma. And there's a great video of him up in Jhumsam uh, talking about uh, Nepal and the mountains. So have a look at that. It's on our webpage. But Marty, like I said, we've still got a few months left and any ideas on how to make our messages better, how to make our voice louder would be very, very welcome. Okay, thank you. And I will definitely post some links uh, in the notes to this episode so people can uh, see where to go to get more information and hopefully to engage. Thank you again, Nanki, for coming on and sharing that information, uh, very clearly laying out the campaign and the situation around the Hindu Kush Himalaya and climate change. Um, best of luck. It's a, it's a huge challenge that you're facing, but extremely, extremely important for everyone, not just us here uh, in the region. So best of luck with your work. Thanks very much for, for having me on this. I have been working in climate change for a while and I, I really do think that it is a crisis and I, I would like to do whatever I can over the next 10 years to try to contribute to positive change. Thank you, Marty. 
Thank you again to Nanki Kaur for coming on the show. As I said, you can find more information about the HKH to Glasgow campaign in the notes to this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure that you follow, favorite, or like Nepal Now on any podcast player so you don't miss the next episode. We are on Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts, and more. Between shows, keep up with what we're doing and just chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're Nepal Now or Nepal Now Pod. Thank you to Soraya Logan for her work on Nepal Now social media. I'm Marty Logan. I produced this episode, and I will talk to you again soon.